This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we're speaking to Karina Kanalakis, who is currently Chief Conductor of the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic Orchestra and Principal Guest Conductor of the Rundfunk Symphonie Orchestra Berlin, and has recently been appointed Principal Guest Conductor of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Karina was born and brought up in a very musical family in New York. She initially studied and began her career as a violinist, playing in a number of the world's leading orchestras. It was while playing with the Berlin Philharmonic as a member of its orchestra academy that she was encouraged to take up conducting by Simon Rattle. From that moment, she's never looked back and has since led top ensembles across the globe. She's equally at home in opera, having conducted major productions of works by composers ranging from Mozart to Maxwell Davies. Karina talked to BBC Music Magazine's deputy editor Jeremy Pound over Zoom about the thrill of working with contemporary composers, the rarity of female role models and the sheer joy of Wagner. First of all, Karina, um, where, where are you talking to me from at the moment? I'm back at home in Amsterdam. Excellent. And that's because of one of your conducting positions, of course. Yes. Yeah, I'm the chief conductor of the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic. Excellent. And how have you been coping with lockdown so far? Well, uh, I've gotten used to it at this point. (laughs) It's been, you know, a while that we've all been dealing with this. Um, And I'm much more fortunate than a lot of my colleagues, I have to say, uh, because I have worked in the past. 
eight months. Um, I, I have actually done broadcasts and concerts and rehearsals and made music. So it's, it's better than nothing. I want to ask you all about your, your life in music, going right back to the very beginning, in fact. Um, and sometimes with these podcasts, we, I talk to people who've kind of come into music actually comparatively late. But I understand that you were born into a very musical family in New York. Yes, that is true. <laughs> music was everywhere in my in my house growing up. Um, both of my parents um, were, you know, music was is sort of the classical music world is their whole existence. Basically, <laughs> it's the best way to describe it. Um, my dad um, is a conductor and former pianist, and my mom is a pianist, and they met at Juilliard <laughs> back in the sixties and. Um, raised my brother and myself in a really small New York apartment full of pianos and cellos and violins and music was always on the stereo. And so it was sort of, I guess, inevitable looking back that I ended up playing violin and becoming a musician. <laughs> what was the first piece of classical music then that which re- you really kind of became aware of and that you really loved? Well, I remember um, various different pieces that my dad was conducting. I think I started going to his concerts when I was about two, sitting on my mom's lap. Um, and one of the one of the pieces that made the biggest impression on me as a child was Prokofiev, Peter and the Wolf. Um, I think I also had a, a clarinet player babysitter, uh, according to my parents, when I was really little. And she used to play and sort of practice for me while she was babysitting me. Um, and I think she played the, you know, the famous um, melody, cat melody from Peter and the Wolf for me when I was little. So, so I, you know, I have, I, I sort of have a, a childhood connection to that piece, like I think a lot of people. I've always been a, a sort of favoured the cat in Peter the Wolf, A, because it's got the jauntiest tune and also because I think it's the coolest animal in the piece. Did you have, a, was there any particular animal which you particularly liked in Peter the Wolf? Um, the French horns, the wolf. <laughs> I loved the the sound of the French horns and um, especially having three of them playing at the same time. I just, I always um, was very drawn to, I guess, the darker, more intense characters in stories. <laughs> Now then, um, did, were you always convinced that you were going to be a classical music did, musician? Did it always seem that way, that you, were, you had it in the stars? Or were you ever tempted to rebel against how you'd been brought up? Mm, good question. I, I, don't, I, I did not always know that I was going to do this. Um, and I had a lot of other interests, and especially being outdoors. And I was a very physically active kid, very athletic and... Um, I couldn't sit still. So um, 
maybe in today's day and age, they would prescribe like a drug for me or something. But at that time, you know, people didn't really do that yet in the eighties. And I was just running around. I needed to run around all the time. So I think actually, um, I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily think that I would be able to, to be a violinist because you have to be indoors all the time. And it's all these very detailed, repetitive motions every day. Um, but the thing that carried me through, I guess, was I just fell in love with the music itself. And I was so in love with it. And it and it made me feel all these emotions. And it really got under my skin from a very young age. And and that's what I remember. It wasn't it wasn't really about me and what I become. It was more about just a fascination for the art form and for all these different discovering all these different composers and their worlds. And you went on, of course, to to study the violin and you actually played in some fairly significant orchestras as a violinist. What stage did you decide that actually you wanted to to take up conducting? It was a non-linear road for me. (laughs) It was a windy path and a very long, gradual process where I I, I sort of was over time magnetically drawn towards conducting over and over and over again over many years. I mean, I started taking conducting classes when I was a 12-year-old girl um, just because my dad felt it was important part of every musician's education. And I was interested in it in college already in the music conservatory. But, um, you know, I had I had sort of bouts of great inspiration in my early 20s when I was playing in these big orchestras in Berlin, Chicago. I played under some conductors that really inspired me, like Simon Rattle and Bernard Haitink and Pierre Boulez, Christian Tielemann. And I thought, oh, this is this is really fascinating. And, and I was studying scores sort of all the time on the side. But I also really loved performing as a violinist. And I had a good life as a violinist and there was no reason for me to do anything different. So um, it took really... I would say my the my the journey was through my entire twenties of sort of flirting with conducting and and but but really considering myself to be primarily a violinist, and then it wasn't until I more or less neared my thirtieth birthday that I started to feel, you know, if I don't give this my all and try it really seriously at least once in my life that I would regret it. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did because actually now I feel that conducting is a much more natural way of making music for me personally, just given my personality, than uh, even than playing violin. Now, it's a bit of a hackneyed old question, but did the comparative lack of other female conductors kind of put you off at all or did that never really occur? Probably, yeah. Looking back, probably, I think um, it was more that I didn't ever play under a woman. Not ever. Uh, None of the conductors coming to those orchestras were ever women. And so I didn't see anybody that looked anything like me. And that, that probably subconsciously made me doubt that it was even possible for me to be a conductor. you know, on a serious high level. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm just happy that I had certain mentors over the years that, that, um, were able to sort of push me through that and encourage me through whatever doubts I had, 
you know, that, yeah, sure, may have, may have definitely been due to the fact that I felt a little bit alone as a girl. Yeah. And, but I guess at least one or two of the, the finest female conductors I can think of, or one of them is a New Yorker, is at Marin Alsop. So you kind of, that she was close to home. Then Joanne Folletta from was down the road in Buffalo. I know the New York is a large state, but at least she was comparatively close. So there, there were one or two around from when you were, when you were growing up. Yes, um, definitely they, I mean, also Simone Young was doing things already then. And, and, um, I think I remember Anu Tali coming once to Berlin with an orchestra from Estonia on tour, a chamber orchestra. And I was, and I was sort of hiding backstage watching her and thinking, oh, wow, that's, it's just, it was so, it was really great to see female person up there, but, but I personally didn't have any contact with any of them. I never played under Marin as a violinist and I never, I never had any contact with them. So, um, and back then you didn't really use the internet and streaming wasn't a thing at all. So I, I didn't, it wasn't like I was going on Facebook and seeing live streams of, of these people, you know, it was, it was much more difficult to get access to video material, um, back in the early 2000s. So, um, yeah, I do think that that probably, um, yeah, maybe, maybe had an effect on me. What sort of music have you found that you're drawn to, particularly drawn to as a conductor? Have you kind of focused on one particular area of repertoire or are you kind of more of a broad church? I definitely have a broad, um, very broad repertoire. And I, I love different specific works from a wide variety of composers. So I would never say that I exclusively love, you know, everything that Strauss ever wrote or everything that Wagner ever wrote. Um, It's more select works that have just had a huge influence on me and grabbed my heart right from the first time I ever heard them. And it's those works that really um, sort of have stolen my attention uh, on a consistent basis over the years. And then on top of those sort of core works, um, just because of the life of a conductor and internet, you know, when you travel internationally a lot, you get asked to do pieces by contemporary American composers when you're in the States and you get asked to do, I get asked to do a lot of Dutch music, of course, being chief conductor of a Dutch orchestra, um, German composers when I'm in Berlin or German based, compo- you know, Berlin based composers. Um, so, so you end up learning a lot of contemporary music. I, I, I do a lot of, um, premieres here with the radio orchestra and, um, with the London Philharmonic, there are, uh, sort, sort of composers that are friends of the orchestra, like Brett Dean, for example, you know, people that um, have a longstanding relationship with the orchestra. So we play their music. And then I also do Mozart operas. And I also, you know, I still haven't conducted the St. John Passion, but something that I really, really have always loved and would love to do at some point. So it's pretty, pretty broad. Yeah. My love of, of the classical repertoire goes from all the way back to, back to Bach and up to, up to people that are even younger than I am. Can you give me some sort of inkling of the thrill of actually conducting a work where the composer himself or herself is in the room and that you actually have the chance to liaise with them about conducting their own work? Yeah, I mean, it's so wonderful. It just there's so many moments when you're conducting a Beethoven symphony where you just wish so much you could email him and say, 
what is the difference between fortepiano and sforzando? You know, what did, what did you, and can we all stop arguing about this now? Because everyone argues about it. What did you mean? You know, uh, uh, but you can't. Um, so it's, it's really, it's really exciting. And I, almost every piece that I do nowadays by, by a living composer, um, I am in email and or phone contact with them in the couple weeks leading up to the first rehearsal. And something that's really important to me. I always have questions and I always want to clarify things. And, and then if it's a, if it's a premiere, uh, the composer is often there in the room and that's even more exciting because they, and if it's a world premiere, then it's really amazing to see their face after the first rehearsal, you know, they've imagined this thing. Um, and, and some composers do the MIDI, MIDI file, you know, these computerized things and some hate it. Some, some use them, some don't, some use them reluctantly, but you know, it never sounds anything like the real version when the, when the real instruments and the human beings are actually interpreting what's been notated. And I think also for composers to, it's been really, really also fascinating for me over the years to work with younger kind of up and coming composers um, because they're still learning notation and they're still learning when you write little black dots on a page and you write markings and you write words in Italian or words in English, what that actually does to a player psychologically, you know, and the, the practicality of perf performing a work and rehearsing a work and reading music is something that a lot of young composers only can learn sort of on the job because it's it's uh they get very cerebral about things very dreamy and and that process i find incredibly fascinating it must be an immense pressure though mustn't it to perform a composer's work for the first ever time it is um but it's funny i have had I would say across the board, um, the, the most wonderful feeling coming from compo composers when it is a world premiere, you know, they've, they've sort of, they're, they're bearing their soul and, and they're in an incredibly vulnerable position. And especially with certain orchestras, you, you always have someone who will come to you at the break and say, you know, excuse me, maestro, this, this passage is just not playable. I mean, what is this composer thinking? And they don't know anything about the trumpet. And, you know, there's always going to be something or the bass player that comes up and says, they have no idea how to write bass harmonics. And, you know, so <laughs> it's, and then you say, okay, okay. And you, you have to sort of be the mediator because you don't want to, you don't want the composer to get their feelings hurt. Um, and, uh, and that's always, it's, it's, but generally composers have so much gratitude in that moment. They're so in awe and grateful to hear their piece played and to see these living, breathing people engaged in, in a world that came entirely out of their imagination. Now then, I want to ask you about one or two things about your general music loving habits and your your as a both as a performer and a listener over the years um we all have our favorite pieces of music which we develop over the time what's the one piece of music you'd say you couldn't live without well i definitely have a a real sort of strong connection to wagner's ring and 
in particular Die Valkyre, the second one, um, which, you know, the I've done I've done the first act sort of isolated in concert, and that is sort of its own piece. It's its own world in and of itself, just the first act of that opera. But it's the third act, the end of the third act, that's the, that's the music that I, I think I, my life would not be the same if that had not <laughs> been written. The Lebewohl, you know, where Wotan has to basically say goodbye forever to his favorite daughter. And something about that subject matter, that relationship and the music itself and the choice of instruments, um, from the very first time I heard it, just uh, I found so heartbreaking and so beautiful and uh, so unlike anything that I, anything else that I had ever heard. Um, so, so that's sort of my, that's, I would say that's probably the Lib Vol- Voltan's farewell is pretty much the thing I can't live without. Although Tristan and Isolde comes, comes close. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned earlier on the taking us back to the Prokofiev Peter and the Wolf, the horns in the Prokofiev. And I've noticed a sort of, you've shown a, a liking for composers who are particularly good at writing for horns because we've had Strauss earlier on and Wagner himself is a, a master writer for the horn. Absolutely. And I, I do love the French horn and um, so much that I, I always wish that I had played it. And I actually did learn to play it. And I had a French horn for a couple of years. <laughs> I borrowed from a friend and tried in vain to to um, make it sound halfway decent, which didn't didn't ever happen. But <laughs> it was it was great to just hold this brass instrument, you know, breathe into something. You don't do that when you play the violin or the piano. Um, so, so I do. And I love, I love what, what he's able to do. Wagner's horn writing is so particular and, um, the way he writes for a quartet of horns is so particular. Um, and his use of harmony is, is so unique because he, he, he doesn't resolve very often. (laughs) And that's why you have these operas that last four and a half hours, because it's sort of it's like one seventh chord going to another after another after another after another. And the tension builds because you never get a, you, you rarely, let's say rarely get a proper tonic resolution um, to it, to a cadence. Um, he always adds the seventh and it's, he often does that with the horns, the four, the four horns or eight horns or four Wagner tubas or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and also I love his use of the bass clarinet. I just think that's so magical and so amazing. A couple of weeks ago, I did some excerpts from Tannhäuser with Nina Stemma and in Stockholm, and then um, we were doing Almächte Jungfrau from Tannhäuser, which of course has these also beautiful bass clarinet solos that sort of weave in and out with the um, with the voice, and I love that about about his writing as well. It's such a lonely lonely, desperate instrument. 
Do you find it sometimes quite difficult to actually come back down to earth after conducting Wagner, that you kind of go up into this special world and it's quite hard to actually drag yourself back down to reality? Yes, perfectly <laughs> described. <laughs> Very much so. Which leads me rather nicely onto my next question, because I understand that your, your current musical obsession is also a Wagner opera as well. Tristan and Isolde. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> which I always think should be called Zolda and Tristan. But anyway, we won't get <laughs> wrong order. Um, but, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely um, in a, I mean, I was so lucky three weeks ago, you know, in this current climate to be able to conduct Wagner. We did this program in Sweden, which is one of the only countries right now that, well, they, they now also have just, sort of locked down but but three weeks ago they were still they were still playing for a very tiny audience and we did this of course with huge social distancing but we did a program with the um Vorspiel in Liebestod with Nina Stemma singing and it was just like medicine for me after so many months of only conducting you know works for 30 players or less <laughs> which are wonderful but not the same as as having a stage full of musicians playing playing Wagner, um, and I think with Tristan and Isolde, it's it's an opera that I've seen many times live over the years. I saw it in Bayreuth with Tielemann conducting. I saw it at the Met with Simon conducting. I've been in rehearsals. I've I've sort of only ever conducted the the Prelude in Liebestod so far. Um, I will do the second act next season. Uh, in concert in Stockholm, which is very exciting. Um, so, you know, it's something, I feel like it's a sort of, Tristan and Isolde has a timelessness uh, and an eternal quality to it that actually, it, it brings me so much out of this realm of reality and out of this world that I start to imagine that that I guess whenever, hopefully not for many years, but whatever the moment that I leave this world and when I'm on my deathbed and when I'm crossing over or whatever, you know, that's the music that I think will come to me. That, that sort of the end of the end of the opera, the Liebestod, basically it's, it, there's something that has always connected with me. Also the beginning of act three, the harmonies and the tension and the suspensions at the beginning of act three. Um, I, I remember studying it at the conservatory and playing it at the piano over and over and over and over again. I couldn't get enough of it. It's just so <laughs> incredible when he's, when Tristan is lying there sort of bleeding to death and um, that's amazing stuff. awful lot actually happens in Tristan and Isolde and it's very long and yet when you watch it on stage the time absolutely flies by so what actually what is Wagner's trick there how does he do that 
Um, good question. I think a lot of composers wish they could, <laughs> they knew the secret. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, as, as we were talking about before, um, the, the lack of tonic resolutions and also the lack, he, he's not an episodic composer. He doesn't, he doesn't write scenes, clearly delineated scenes. There's no break in the music other than between acts, um, and, and the only reason that, you know, really there is even that is because the singers would literally die if he didn't do that. <laughs> they need a half an hour break. <laughs> um, so otherwise he probably would have written four and a half hours of straight singing, um, if it were humanly possible. And, um, and these long spun out lines that, that sort of build up tension and, and, and of course, there are moments of release, but the release is usually so brief and so um, particular in its instrumentation that it, it never feels expected. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of in the first act of Die Valkyrie, for example, the use of the harp um, as sort of the only instrument that ever gives you tonic chords, <laughs> you know, nice rolling harmonies. Um, and it comes as such a surprise and such a, and such a sort of sonic relief after um, the, the hunding music, for example, which is so intense and so um, full of uh, uh, this threatening sort of menacing, dark, dark feeling. Um, and, and with, with Tristan and Isolde, I mean, if you just look at the prelude alone, this prelude and the, the harmonic language of the prelude is famous in every harmony book that exists. It's, it's something that was used as an example of the sort of the next stage of music. The, 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 it was a turning point in the entire canon of, of Western classical music in terms of, uh, harmonically what you would expect and then what you actually get. Uh, it was so out there. Um, and I think that also is something that as a listener, it draws you in to such an extreme degree that you lose a sense of time. You lose a sense of the fact that you've been sitting for an hour already um, because it's it's just the harmonic language is so incredibly captivating. You mentioned earlier on, this is a probably a conversation for another time that perhaps it should be called Isolde and Tristan. And I can think of a, a wealth of operas like that. We could easily call it Bess and Porgy, Melisande, Pelias, kind of, I think it's, it's a sad convention that the man's name always comes first. But I, th- I think maybe that's something we'll, we'll change over time. I don't know. Well, Janacek is very good with that because he, he writes his operas often entirely about female characters. So, you know, it's, it's, it's also... Um, another composer that I've been studying a lot during lockdown and I'm doing a cycle of his operas coming up in Amsterdam. So it's, and that's great. You have, you know, Katya and you have Yenufa and all these yeah. amazing, and the mom and the grandma <laughs> and the this and that and the friend. And the, so you have a lot of characters that are, that are female without any competition from <laughs> the, the males well, the men, play purely yeah. supporting roles. The, the men in Janacek operas tend to be either bullies or weak, don't they? Exactly, one well. or the other. <laughs> he had a very narrow view of his own sex. <laughs> you mentioned your darker side earlier on. 
What's the best concert you've ever been to? Oh, that is very easy to answer because it's a it's a concert that I absolutely did not expect to be what it was. And this, it was, when was this? It must've been around 2013, something like that. And it was um, Sweeney Todd, Stephen Sondheim, Sweeney Todd, performed in Every Fisher Hall, which is now called David Geffen Hall. I still can't get, get used to that. Um, by Alan Gilbert conducting the New York Philharmonic. Bryn Terfell was singing the title role. Um, Emma Thompson, the actress, was singing alongside him. Uh, Audra McDonald. I mean, the cast was just unbelievable. And they they semi-staged it. But when the performance began, you didn't know they were going to semi-stage it because they covered it up. So they had these very gaudy looking traditional gold curtains hanging and everyone was, all the singers were positioned along the front edge of the stage with music stands in front of them as though they were going to sort of give a very traditional concert performance of this piece. And all of a sudden, someone kicked, one of the singers just kicked a bucket of flowers off the stage and it crashed down. <laughs> and you thought, what is happening? And then another character kicked their music stand straight off the stage, you know, ripped up their music, threw it down. And after the intro of the piece, the gold curtains dropped, the lights changed, and you realized that you were sort of, it looked like you were in a New York City subway station covered in graffiti with red lights. And then the real performance started. And, and so it was, a, it was a semi-staged version of the piece and the singing, but also the acting because of Emma Thompson. It was somehow the combination of having one of the greatest opera singers alive with one of the greatest actors alive on stage. And then you had this great orchestra, great conductor. I mean, the whole thing was just so unexpectedly mind-blowing. <laughs> There's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled with people who are filled with shit and the vermin of the world inhabit it. But not for long. They all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Lovitch, tell you why. Because in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lovitch, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's a one same fortune. And are you a Sondheim fan in general? No, not at all. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, not a fan, but I'm, that's not really my world. I, you know, I sang in musicals when I was 12, 13 in school. And after that, it stopped. I didn't continue my sort of, um, I didn't, I didn't really feed that fire at all. I didn't uh, go to a lot of musicals, even in high school. I was sort of already um, out of that whole world. And uh, even just for them to play that piece at all was such an amazing choice. You know, you usually go to a symphony orchestra and you just, you hear the same Brahms and Beethoven symphonies over and over again, which is great music, but it's not very creative. And it's certainly not helping us with getting any kind of a new audience into the concert hall. And that was the other thing about these performances. The audience was a mixed bag of every possible age. You had teenagers in leather jackets covered in tattoos sitting in there. You know, you had people that were just, that you would normally not see come to a Mahler symphony. They wouldn't even know, not because they don't, they wouldn't like it, but because they just don't know to buy tickets for that sort of repertoire. 
but this, they, they were interested. And then, and so it was just a, it was so different and it was so refreshing. And that I think is a lovely note in which to round off our podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Karina. It's been lovely to talk to you. You too. Thanks. That was conductor Karina Kanalakis on the classical music that has shaped her life. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week where we'll be talking to another fascinating figure from the world of music about their enduring musical loves. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world, and you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Jack Bateman